is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Enter Sad Men podcast. We're now on episode 27, so it's lovely to have you with us again. And this episode is called Wherever I May Roam. More about that in a minute. But just to talk about us and the podcast, we are on www.entersadmen.co.uk. This podcast, you've already found it, and it's available pretty much everywhere that you get your podcast we're on twitter we're on facebook just look for enter sad men and you should find us and thanks once again for joining us so yes here we are episode 27 wherever i may roam we needed to choose albums or bands with a geographical theme so here we go this week we're traveling well to a few places around the world. I'm Richard. I'm here as ever with my friends Mark and Steve. Good evening, gentlemen. Good evening. Hello, sir. How are you? Yeah, really, really good. Lovely to be with you virtually again and uh, good to have everyone around the world listening to us again this week. Right, we should get into this episode then and the albums that we have chosen. Steve, do you want to tell us the location and album artist that you've selected for this week's show? I tell you what, well done everyone, by the way, for ignoring the obvious because there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunities to do Asia and Europe, wasn't there? Big <laughs> <Yes. laughs> items like Kansas and Chicago and um, yeah no I think we've been good boys I've gone Middle East I've gone late 80s would I be anywhere else and I've gone Babylon AD and their debut album fantastic Mark what about you well just to pick up Steve the, the album may have come out in the uh, the late 80s that Babylon was between the 6th and 18th century BC not sure you'll find that on a map anywhere these days but well done well done Mesopotamia brilliant <laughs> so I went for something a little more modern um, but my album is also in the 80s it's, it's a, an album that was always going to make an appearance somewhere and this seemed like the obvious opportunity. So I have gone for the Liverpool band Marseille and their third album, Touch the Night. Richard, what did you bring up? I think a hairball uh, I brought up. So I've gone for either Israel or Belgium, because there's a there's a small town or village in Belgium, also called Nazareth, from Scotland. And I've gone for their classic album, Hair of the Dog. Very interesting album for, for this week. Let's have a little listen to some of the snippets of what we've been enjoying. Yeah. 
Okay, so kicking off episode 27, as we invariably do, we're in the 1970s, and Rich, do you want to take us away with Nazareth and uh, Hair of the Dog? Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, so uh, Nazareth's Hair of the Dog is their sixth studio album, Scottish hard rock band, and it was recorded early in 1975, believe it or not, recorded in just nine days, which is uh, pretty amazing. It was released on April the 30th, 1975, on the Vertigo label, produced by their own guitarist, Manny Charlton, and recorded in uh, studios in Kent and London in the UK. Clocks in at just over 40 minutes in length, and has eight, I suppose, tracks on it. Side one's Hair of the Dog, Miss Misery, Guilty and Changing Times. Side two is uh, Beggar's Day and Rose and Heather joined together and then Whiskey Drinking Woman and Please Don't Judas Me. Did pretty well in America. At, uh, it managed to get to number 17 in the billboards. I don't think it charted in the UK, but it's done pretty well for them globally, clocking up around uh, 2 million or so sales. Uh, so Nazareth at the time were as follows. Dan McCafty was on, on vocals, Manny Charlton say on, on guitar and synths as well, Pete Agnew on bass and a bit of backing vocals and Daryl Sweet on a bit of backing vocals and some drums. It's uh, Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this album. I, I knew uh, the title track, but not any of the rest of it. I mean, it's regarded by a lot of people as their finest hour. And yeah, I really enjoyed listening to it this last uh, week or so. Uh, boys, what about you? Well, I've had a, a great time because uh, suddenly dawned on me that this is an album that I've actually owned since I was nine years old and I'd completely forgotten about it, despite the fact that I used to play it all the time. So I bought Nazareth's single, 1975 single, My White Bicycle. Back in the 70s and, and I guess the 80s, bands had a habit, do you remember, of releasing non-album singles? So My White Bicycle was the non-album single that either preceded the release of this or, or came shortly after. Anyway, I bought the single with my pocket money when I was nine years old because I really liked it, which is odd because I listened to it again and um, let's just say it hasn't stood the test of time. But I badgered my parents to buy me the record that this that, that single came from. They went out and they just bought this. They, I don't think they even knew which single it was. Anyway, My White Bicycle is not on this album, but nevertheless, I played it. I can't believe that my parents actually let, let me play at nine years old an album that starts with a, a song that has Son of a Bitch in the lyrics. But there you go. I'm not sure how much I liked it. I think I just liked the notion of owning a record. But no, I love this album. There are bits of it that haven't stood the test of time. There are a couple of absolute corkers on it. Steve, what about you? I love it. There are bits of it that haven't stood the test of time. It's from the 70s, my friend. That's inevitably going to be the case, isn't it? <laughs> I, 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 I do vaguely remember listening to this a long time ago and remember being underwhelmed. Probably just couldn't appreciate it. Wouldn't have understood it. Just didn't get it. Didn't float my boat and kind of left it. And you brought up an interesting thing about the 70s, which was um, about the, the singles. Another thing I'm going to say about the 70s, and it's a crazy generalisation, and I'm probably wrong, but I'm sure you won't agree with me, but I just think music was just far more interesting <laughs> You know, I mean, I love the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s musically, but I just thought the 70s were 70. And this is a really, really interesting album. And that could be a euphemism for shit, couldn't it, interesting? And it genuinely isn't. We've got a lot of bands from the 70s so far, who, bands who, who who are interesting. You know, I was thinking of Judas Priest when we did Sad Wings of Destiny. Four years later, they did British Steel. One of those is very interesting. One of them is a fucking good rock album. And I know which one's the interesting one. And, and you think about Uriah Heep and Hart and things. All these bands in the 70s, they were doing, it's musicianship, I think. Anyway, it's a very long way 
round of saying that I really enjoyed this album massively. And yeah, and the other thing you say about 70s music, yeah, it's got flaws and you almost wouldn't have it any other way. I, I think it's been a fun listen, a really fun listen. I think that's really interesting. That that takes us back a bit. So do you remember the, the special, when we did the special with Brian Tatler, he said one of the things he laments about music of the sort of 80s, 90s onwards is that they weren't doing different things on an album. You know, now you would never get a rock band doing what Zeppelin did and doing a folk song followed by something reggae, followed by something out-and-out rock. And the thing about Nazareth is they follow that pattern of doing different things, don't they? And the other really interesting thing is that you mentioned the name Judas Priest, and that's not the first time that name's going to come up tonight. (laughs) I think it's spot on, Steve. From all of the albums that we've reviewed so far, particularly from that first half of the 70s, they're hugely experimental. They're not consistent. We don't love every track because they are so all over the place, you know? think about we loved but but really disliked um, as well the number of the tracks on say Fragile by Yet we talked about the hits and misses on Physical Graffiti but you're absolutely right I think they had the, the artist this period appeared to have the control to do what they wanted to be able to do to create music in, in whatever style yeah this is a, a another album that absolutely fits into that as we'll, as we'll discover right shall we give it a listen let's give it a listen Right then, here we go. The album kicks off with the title track and uh, the two words that are forming a bit of a theme in our Sad Men podcasts, which are the words, more cowbell. Uh, Just fantastic percussive cowbell start and then a real lovely low dirty riff kicks in. The words Mark said earlier you hear on this track are son of a bitch, which is what they wanted to call the track originally and the album. They uh, were told that that wouldn't get past the censors, so they then came up with another suggestion, which was air, H-E-I-R, of the dog, which was also frowned upon. So then hence hair of the dog for both this song and the, the album came around, but still absolutely love this track. What do you think, guys? So I've written down here, cowbell plus talk box plus riff equals gold. <laughs> and that's it. This is a great, great song. It really is. I must admit, one of the few things about the 70s that I did get quite bored with was the cowbell eventually, but it, but for now... <laughs> and Skid Row, let's face it, Skid Row liked the cowbell as well, didn't they? So it, We had plenty with Guns N' Roses as well, you know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it survived, it did survive. I just think this is this is a fantastic opener. Yeah, that riff, it's just so infectious and, um, and upbeat. The other thing I like about this, and you see it with two or three tracks on this, is that the way they don't quite finish it, it just goes on and on and on. Their ability to just milk the end out of a song either intensely or unintentionally I just think that's fantastic you can imagine the producer behind the desk just saying I'll go on lads just just do what the fuck you want I'll I'll, I'll press stop at some point (laughs) I get the feeling that they just they've they've gone John this is a really good stonking riff we're just going to we don't want to stop. We're just going to keep going. Yeah. Because I could listen to that riff forever, couldn't you? Yeah. It is one of the classics, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. We talked about Guns N' Roses, of course. I mean, they covered this on the Spaghetti Incident. But do you know what I think really lifts this riff at the end is the bass literally just plugging away underneath it. Yeah. Just brilliant. And, the, brilliant. And, and, and equally, the drumming is quite uncomplicated as well. It's, it, and it becomes really hypnotic. You could just sit there and just you, almost trance-like it because that riff just never stops the, the, the way the, the melody is as well. His voice, I mean, we'll talk about McCaffrey's voice. That's proper rock. 
That's a proper rocker. That ending, the percussion, the female vocals, the guitar, it, it, it reminded me of Primal Scream. One other thing, I don't know if you heard that, but Hair of the Dog was also sampled for a Girls Aloud track called, <laughs> called Sexy No, No, No. I haven't quite worked out which bit of it is sampled. Anyway, <laughs> Girls Aloud to Miss and Miss Misery, track two. This is where I, I have to mention Judas Priest because this is like listening to Rob Halford, isn't it? It's, it's released in 1975, same year as Sad Wings of Destiny but this is more Judas Priest than Judas Priest <laughs> amazing yeah I was actually going to mention Black Sabbath just because it's yeah. a very doomy deep Sabbath-esque kind of riff isn't it it's a lot heavier than the first track heavy as in weighty heavy so it's very unrelenting again menacing I love it yeah there's something of war pigs about it isn't there mm. they, yeah, yeah they get more priesty on changing times I think I was literally I was going wow this could have been recorded by Judas Priest because Manny Charlton also makes that single guitar but it sounds like a twin guitar attack doesn't it as well so really good and a grower for me that driving riff isn't it relentless brilliantly covered by Overkill you'll be pleased to know that's one of Richard's favourite bands so. oh it is now I'll have to check it out I forget which album it was one of their more recent albums did they speed it up a bit Steve a little bit they're, they're honest they're honest with it yeah they do it well it's a good song and track three we talked earlier about the experimentation from the absolute thundering shuffle rock drive of Miss Misery we go into track three which is Guilty starting with some slide guitar and electric piano and I mean it's almost country feel to it now mm. written by Randy Newman and it's a cover isn't it of a song that appeared on his album that was released about eight months before called Good Old Boys I thought he wrote it for Bonnie Raitt didn't he well I'm sure it's been everywhere it certainly appeared on his on Randy Newman's album I had a few beers on Sunday night and listened to the versions by Bonnie Raitt and this and Bonnie gets it all night long I'm afraid this is a big miss on this track especially when you consider the track that the Americans got because <laughs> this wasn't on the US version was it wasn't it didn't have Love Hurts on that's right which I like a lot this is a bit meh yeah what's surprising is it doesn't go anywhere it, it felt like about halfway through some drums just a, another lift but well we've had conversations before about tracks that don't go anywhere and that, that in itself is not a criticism I'm immediately drawn back to Seagull for example which I think is, yeah, uh, yeah. Which, which doesn't seem to particularly go anywhere but it subtly does perhaps and this kind of doesn't does it at all I think you're being kind Steve it just doesn't go anywhere it's, the problem with this is that it's bland it's just vanilla isn't it they've not done anything really interesting with it it's a perfectly good song but it's not special you're not going to buy the album for this are you? if it was on some late night compilation and you know, you're in some smoky room you'd think yeah this is cool but it, after the first two tracks you're itching to go okay what's the next one what's the next one yeah yeah so let's move on to it shall we on to changing times and hey Led Zeppelin have just entered the room yeah what were you thinking good times bad times yeah 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 <laughs> but then it turns into Judas Priest at about 1 minute 30 yes those overdub guitars later on yes yeah. classic isn't it the bass drums guitar all in sync it's a great riff again but and this is true of a lot of this album and <laughs> particularly the last track this track goes on for too long oh no too- no 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 definitely not I completely disagree no. this is exactly the one well there's two of them because I love um, well there's another one well three of them this is outro gold it doesn't go on too long at all definitely not. Steve, I agree with you. It is outro gold. It's also intro gold. It's the bit in the middle that's the problem. <laughs> 
just take it out, sandwich those two together, Bob's oh, your uncle. Okay, yeah. Here we are, we're introduced priest world now. Yeah. This could be on British Steel. Well, that goes back to what I was saying that the, before the album starts. So we're four tracks in, that's four very different tracks. But, you know, you can't typecast this boy. You're struggling to find a pigeonhole for this lot. You can appreciate, is it Pete Agnew, the bass player? I never even wanted to play the bass, he said. The only reason why I started playing the bass was because there was nobody in Dunfermline who could do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> I think that's true isn't it when you're in the school band you're guaranteed a spot in a in a band if you could play the bass because that's, that's the one thing nobody could do yeah, right. and you only need two notes it was two notes wasn't it dum 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 all it was <laughs> this is a great song I just think it could do with being about a minute shorter but not the end bit keep the end bit keep the start no, no. Yeah, yeah 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 keep the end bit absolutely yeah I think it's, it's that third quarter isn't it it's almost a bit Allman Brothers, isn't it? I mean, again, how many styles and bands do you want to get into one song? So we've got yeah. we get Led Zeppelin, goes a bit Judas Priest, then a, a bit Allman Brothers. But get, again, the, the finish is rather like um, Hair of the Dog now. We've got all these guitar layers and you're suddenly in a really hypnotic place, aren't you? It just traps you in. It's just fantastic. And that engine room, the ACDC-esque engine room behind it as well, holding it all together. Mentioning ACDC again in a minute. Okay, so um, Engine Times ends side one. We need to uh, flip that record over and we begin side two and side two begins with a combined track we're assessing it as two tracks uh, for this podcast the first part is beggar's day and then that's followed by rose in the heather so beggar's day it was a cover i believe of a crazy horse song wasn't it by neil slofgren that wrote it and i think it's a really good start to the second side and for me one of those covers having listened to the original that is better yeah i agree love this song it's a really really good opening side two the only slight issue I have with it is it puts Dan McCafferty right at the top of his range mm. and that sounds quite uncomfortable sometimes. Mm. I wouldn't be wrong again. I've never heard him sound more comfortable in all the years I've listened to Nazareth. I love it, I love it. When he does straight, you're absolutely right. He just sounds like Brian Johnson. It's really interesting that you mention that because I listened to this thinking, what if they'd gone for Dan McCafferty instead? It would have fitted really well, wouldn't yeah, it? Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, no dissing Beano but they could have put Dan McCafferty in and they would have had a hell of a singer on their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is heavy again, isn't it? This is a heavy, heavy, heavy track. You know, I defy any young kid who doesn't know anything about this era rock. Get hold of some Nazareth. Get hold of this track. This is proper, proper metal, almost. I don't know about anybody else, but one of the reasons why this never kind of came onto my radar when we were talking about the records we'd owned as kids, I never thought of Nazareth as a rock band. No. Because all I ever really heard, part this album, but I bought the, the album because I like My White Bicycle which is a pop song yeah Love Hurts slow very different nothing like this unfortunately yeah well let's, let's talk about Rose and Heather because uh, after about uh, what four minutes or so Vegas Day gives way sort of seamlessly to um, a gentle orchestral instrumental let me just quote my note nonsense sounds like the opening to the office handbags and glad rags only that's better <laughs> <laughs> what do you think Steve uh, I, I, I can't match that that's a beautiful description yeah I, I just said I wasn't bothered about this tack on yeah, th- there's a reason for it they know it I don't may I offer a theory I think I think with songs like this this reeks to me of a band that quite likes what they've done but doesn't really think there's a place for it on the album so they've tacked it onto the back of something else because it doesn't stand alone in its own right mm. I think that's where I got to with it I think these kind of bands are confident enough and assured enough to do completely the opposite
opposite of that and say if it's worth the place on an album they'll put it on an album and we've seen a lot of bands who put shit two and three minute effectively interludes in albums and they believed in it this lot almost trying too hard with this I just don't um, it could have gone as a standalone track it effectively is because we're marking it as such but it's so pointless yeah it is I disagree that it's not good. I think the segue is weird. And I don't know why the two tracks are joined together. As a two and a half minute piece of music, I quite like it. Um, I don't think it's brilliant, but I don't think it's bad. I'd love to know their thinking about why they joined it onto a cover. Is, is, is that their nod to progginess, do you think? Possibly, yeah. Well, I hold it in the same as affection as a whole fragile. Well, we'd better give you some whiskey, Mark. No, that isn't going to solve it, not this whiskey. <laughs> Let's move on to, in our view, track three of side two, which contains the fantastic lines, but it sure upsets me seeing her juiced up every night and the way that things are going, I'll have to buy the distillery. It's a track called Whiskey Drinking Woman. So now they're off into folk blues territory. I just think this is fantastic. Well, it's a beautifully written song anyway, but it's the wit as well. You bought that line. I thought the opening line close up the bar you know the gates of the brewery she's out there every night and she sure ain't drinking tea I mean it's priceless it's really funny it's really good later in the show we'll talk about a Babylon AD song called Sally Dance and they go a bit kind of a bit southern a bit and a bit Bayou and they actually do it pretty well for a hair metal band because it's not their strong suit at all it's a good song but this is how you do folk blues with a bit of an edge and a bit of humour and I think it's a great tune as I say very witty and, and, and McCafferty's um, vocal dexterity we're listening to a different side of the vocalist different side of the band I love it I don't dislike it I don't think it's as good as you think it is that's fine that's kind of what makes the world go around isn't it and and the one recurring theme of this podcast is that we all like albums for completely different reasons this doesn't do it for me I think there are better examples of this kind of ramble through folksy kind of bluesy worlds this is so kind of in counterpoint to what you've just said Steve but that, that little kind of shuffle riff that goes through the bottom end of it just reminds me of the theme tune to Paddington (laughs) I can't get Mr Brown out of my head and there's marmalade everywhere The other thing this track has got, of course, is um, yet another perfect ending. It's just like a jam. You know, yet again, the art of just letting a song just drift wherever they want to take it. And I really admire that about all of these kind of bands from this era. I, I absolutely love the fact that they go off down an alleyway and they don't care. They're going to go and explore it and they're going to share that experience with us. Completely get that and love them for it. Yeah, it's a song that makes me smile. We should move on to the final track on the album, which uh, is Please Don't Judas me and well I think you know in line with the band's name this kind of does take us a little bit to the Middle East doesn't it to begin with tabla drums and some of the the synthesizers and it's a very atmospheric start yeah two minutes of wasted time as far as I'm concerned (laughs) this is another track that for me is is way 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 too long Mm. and you know you shave the two minutes of Doctor Who at the beginning off it and then you shorten everything in the middle of it and you bring it in at maybe six minutes and I think you've got a really good song on your hands. Mm. I like the atmosphere at the start, but it does just take a little bit to get going. You know, once it gets into sort of a couple of minutes and you start singing and it starts to build, it's a very, very clever song. Yeah, I think it's you know, it's much too long and it, it suffers in my score for that reason. I still strangely like it despite the length, but I would shorten it up. Yeah, but then you like Dark Side of the Moon, so I would understand that. That kind of long, dreamy, lift music, 
start to a song. Yeah, that's kind of Floyd, isn't it? Even for me, who's been extolling the virtues of these extended outros, I find this way too long. Way too long. Every time I've listened to this, I've listened to it all the way through. As a finish to an album, they're a lot worse. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about some highs and lows. Steve? Yeah, okay, but before we do, do you prefer that version or Metallica's? I didn't even know Metallica had done a version of it. An acoustic version on one of their, well, their acoustic oh, album, it. Helping Hands or something. Oh, yeah, okay. No, I've not, I've not heard it. Check it out. Well, it's as self-indulgent as you could imagine. They'd make it. It's better. That's all I would say. But highs and lows. Okay, so my low, it's obvious that's guilty, and my high, well, now that I know we're marking them separately, it's Beggar's Day. So Rose and the Heather was the low by quite a long way for me and Hair of the Dog I don't think I can get past that really Beggar's Day came very close but no Hair of the Dog for me Richard? Whilst I think Rose and the Heather is a perfectly good track it's probably at the bottom of the pile with Guilty and yeah I can't get past the brilliance of the opening track of the of the title track Hair of the Dog it's, it's just uh, magnificent Right, well, there we go. The first of our Wherever I May Roam Geographical Places albums, Nazareth's Hair of the Dog. Right, we should move on to our second of this episode and we move into the mid-80s and we come back to somewhere in Europe, Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, the rough seaport in the south of France, which is Marseille. By the mid-70s, they'd had a band named after it, a band from Liverpool, who had originally called themselves ACDC, then discovered that uh, that name had been taken in spectacular fashion and so needed to change it. And they decided that they wanted to kind of pay a a bit of an homage to their uh, industrial roots. They didn't think Liverpool would work as as a band name, so they decided to go for the slightly more exotic but no less rough seaport of Marseille. This is their third album, Touch the Night, released in 1984, recorded in 1984, we think, but finding any sort of detail about any of their albums is actually quite hard. It was released on uh, a new label called Ultra Noise. This has the uh, catalogue number Ultra 2. Mama's Boys was Ultra 1. Steve, quick pop quiz. Do you know what was Ultra 3? Baby Taku's Firstborn. You bastard, you looked that up. (laughs) Yes, Baby Taku's Firstborn. Well done. Should have known as a journalist you'd do the research. It runs at 35 minutes, 12 seconds, and was produced by John Verity, a member of Argent, among other bands. Uh, Produced it in... The the best that I can do, short of asking John himself, is that it was recorded somewhere in Yorkshire. The personnel for this, Sav Pierce on lead and backing vocals, looking very fetching on the cover, with a bare-chested look and some dark sunglasses. Mark Relton on lead and rhythm guitars and backing vocals, Steve Dinwoody on bass and black backing vocals, and Keith Knowles, the only ever-present member of the band on drums. It didn't chart, no surprise there, uh, either here and certainly not in the US. No idea how many records, how many copies they sold. My guess is not a lot. So the track listing on this album, it's a nine-track album, five and four, side one, Crazy, Walking on a High Wire, After the Fall, Touch the Night, and reach for the night, flip it over, and you get too late, gate crashing, uh, live now, pay later, and open fire. So, as I say, formed in 1976, all of their albums are acclaimed to one degree or another on a variety of lists, usually on lists of obscure hard rock albums, which I guess tells its own story. The first two albums, 
Red, White and Slightly Blue and the self-titled second album propelled them to the brink of commercial success, actually, to the point where they were the only UK Nwabam band of their era to tour in the United States, coincidentally, as support of Nazareth on their Hair of the Dog tour. Um, They returned that tour to find that their record company and agency were on the verge of collapse and bankruptcy, which subsequently happened, leaving, as fate would have it, all of their kits stranded in the United States. A protracted two-year legal battle saw the band split up with three of the members returning to day jobs to pay the bills. Only Knowles remained. And by the time they were reborn into this lineup, because it wasn't a reunion, obviously their moment had really passed. And this album, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, or at least you know the, the sort of the timing of it and where they whether they were sort of out of time. You need to remember this album came out after things like The Number of the Beast, after Pyromania, after a lot of other massive new wave of British heavy metal albums. And the production on this album was by virtue of budget, I imagine, done on a shoestring and certainly not the big budget circus that was afforded to both Maiden and Leopard. However, all of that said, this remains one of my favourite albums of all time for all of its flaws and it is flawed but I absolutely love it. How did you two get on? Very enjoyable. Not heard any of it before. It's a shame, again, isn't it? The, the production is a little lightweight. It could have sounded way, way better because some of the, the, the songwriting and the arrangements are, are, are pretty strong. Because for, I mean, for me, when I put this on, it reminded me of a band you know, that will make an appearance sooner or later, big favourite band, which is Grand Prix, who are around, you know, sort of 82, 83. So it's that, I don't know if it's a post album sound. Do you know what I mean? It sounded, I think, right for its time. I mean, you think at this time, you know, you think what Magnum were doing around this time as well. So, yeah, it was good to discover. Steve Kerrang described it as a closet classic. Did you think it was a closet classic? Well, I, re- I listened to it in the toilet. Is that is that the same thing? Or I get the classic bit because I think it's a great album, an absolutely brilliant album. There's so many fascinating stories with this band that you only realise when you start digging into them. You talk about Red, White and Slightly Blue. I thought that was quite punky for, for new wave of British heavy metal. It was very punky. I think this was a band by 84 and it'd been a couple of years since their previous album hadn't it this is a band trying to bridge that gap isn't it between the new wave the avalanche of hair metal that is in the process of transforming the 80s landscape as you say you only have to look at sab's glorious body on the on the album cover to see the kind of direction they were they were they were angling themselves towards they wanted a piece of that and when you listen to it you sense that that's that's the sound here this is not new wave of british heavy metal this is melodic rock going looking forward and they obviously wanted that shot at the next level. Let's be honest, it was never going to happen on Ultra Noise, was it? But I would have thought that this, this album would have got noticed and that it got signed up by a bigger label. As I say, it's fascinating stories about this band who were crowned Battle of the Bands in 1977 or however it all started. I've got an awful lot of affection to this album, having only heard it a few times. It's right in my wheelhouse for the kind of rock that I was... We mentioned Baby Taku earlier and Mama's Boys and Little Angels and all these kind of bands. There's a real kind of similarity at Thunder to a degree. There's a kind of... There's a feel about these bands going forward and it just never happened for them. And I think they're still going, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah. Should we um, give it a spin? So, Touch the Night kicks off with a track called Crazy, which is one of probably two, only two out-and-out rockers on the album. I mean, it's got a hook to die for, as far as I'm concerned. Mark Railton's guitars are out of this world, given the, as we've already talked about, the limitations of the production. Um, But you can hear what a great guitarist he is. I think it's a really good, solid rocker of an opener. And you can kind of hear their past punk influences I think in this as well yeah Keith Keith Knowles drumming will will tell you that all the way through the album it's it's that kind of machine gun punk 
punk drumming all the way through, isn't it? It's pretty uncomplicated. Um, I got a feel, but as, as soon as this track started, it's a great track. I just got a real feel of old school Bon Jovi with that opening sort of ten bars or so. And it definitely goes off in it in its own way, but um, great riff. And and you're immediately thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. I could I could do an album of this because I kind of figure it's going to be pretty samey. Yeah, this is this is a really really powerful start. Yeah, it's good stuff. Start. Good stuff. I mean, I like the riff, the choruses, the the all the vocal harmonies on the choruses. That's a real feature, isn't it? And uh, they they display that well here. I think this song could have been better with some more original drumming. That drumming lets this down a little bit for me, but it's a good opener. Okay, should we move it on? Yeah. Track two is, well, if, if you're not hooked by now, this is Walking on a High Wire, and I will sing this all day long because it's just got a hook that climbs inside your head and stays there, and it's bouncy and fun, and I think you're absolutely right, Richard. The thing that is an absolute hallmark of this album is the is the harmonies, and they nail them on every single song, with one exception. This is my grower of the week. It's so catchy and a really light chorus. So it's a, for me, it's a bit survivor. This is the one where I listen to it. That I, that's Grand Prix. Really catchy bridge to it. Good, good song. Good, makes you smile, this song. I think I've got a bit carried. You might have to chuck a glass of water at me. I, I, I love all this. Um, it's a brilliant song. And, and that kind of fusion of, of glam and hair, hair AOR. How about that? That's a, new, that's a new genre. But I was name checking some bands and I started listing them and I've gone through Baby Tuck. When I, I get a bit of autograph and I get a bit of docker and I'm thinking, come now. And then I've written Van Halen. Fuck me. But, I mean, it's it's not in that stratosphere. I, I, I don't know what happened there. Um, but that's the ballpark, I mean. I mean, I'm, I'm just really enjoying mid-80s melodic rock. Brilliant stuff. I think the key word in all of that was happy, because this makes me feel happy. It is typical of these the, the songs of this age, because along with, the obviously, the big power ballad of the early mid-80s in rock songs, were these songs about being in love and, oh, my goodness, it's a bit dangerous, but it's so lovely. Um, so this and, you know, I mean, there's um, High On You is, you know, on Survivor's Vital Signs, this whole thing about this this boom of, of, of new love and, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, they, they capture it really well. And it's nice, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I go back to this era and it, there's, a, there's a kind of a vulnerability that all of these big rock albums with the big hair and the, you know, and the, the, the big sunglasses all kind of pouring their hearts out. Y and T were, you know, absolutely the same ar- around this sort of era. And we lost that in sort of 88, 89. It became more about masculine control. Yeah, and then, um, then grunge came in and depressed everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you can see a trajectory, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> we were children. We were children. Should we move it on? Okay, so uh, track three of Touch the Night is After the Fall, which is another kind of rock-solid, ear-friendly, bit of sing-along candy. Sav Pierce, I think, is in great form on this. It's got another fantastic hook line. And this is just power AOR, isn't it? Yeah, it's got a really good chuggy start. Good riffs, yeah. And, and he, yeah, he belts this one out, doesn't he? Chuggy. Chuggy is the word, which is why I thought it sounded like a more tuneful Iron Maiden. Kind of that sort of galloping along. An Iron Maiden. 
maiden rate. You're right. I hadn't even clocked that, but you're absolutely right. It is. It's like a it's like a more melodic maiden, isn't it? I love the um, I love the chorus on this. Are they, are they all taking vocal duties? Because and they're all credited with backing vocals, aren't they? So I'm presuming that yeah. harmonies in the chorus are all of them. This for me is a really strong start to an album. Yeah, you know, you've got three top tracks, bang, 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 one after the other. But if nobody's got anything else to say about this one, we are suddenly brought crashing down to earth <laughs> with track number four, which is the point at which you you just kind of go, oh, oh, because what you're really looking for is more of the same. But what you actually get is the title track of all things. You know it's coming, Mark, don't you? By, by it's, it's mathematics. You've had one, two, yeah. three. You know it's coming. Four tends to be it. But what you're hoping for is that you're going to get something done as well for the for a ballad as they've done for a, an AOR kind of. Yeah. And and they don't. It's just. I mean, it's it, it is truly, truly dreadful. It is. I've written here. It's sub Simon and Garfunkel meeting. Don't stop believing in a dark subway full of zombies. <laughs> Well, that's painted a picture, isn't it? Well, the comment I've just got is, but is it better than Silent Night? Oh, and <laughs> here we go. This is always going to be the benchmark now, isn't it? And I think we can all agree it's not better than Silent no, I, Night. Because I, I think Silent Night was good. It's not good for a title track, is it? And if it's any consolation, Steve, I have scored this lower than I scored Silent Night. Uh-huh. So the world is safe. That's a sorry. That's a really interesting point, Richard. You make, and I haven't even touched on that. It's the title track, isn't it? I mean, why would you name the title track after this sort of song? Name it crazy. Name it walking on a high wire. Name it after the fall. Name it anything but this. Yeah. So let's let's skip to the end of this one. This album is uh, is. Nine tracks, uh, an uneven split, obviously, with five on the front, four on the back. So the fifth track and final track of side one on Touch the Night is Reach for the Night, which I guess is better than the preceding track, but still not great. I think the riff kind of redeems it a bit, but that's about all you've got to say for it, really, I think. Yeah, I found this a bit formulaic. Yeah, I guess going after a while. Chorus is nice again, but not as interesting as other tracks on the album. I like it. I do like it. I think it is. It's certainly not. It's certainly not complex. But I mean, that's an accusation you could level at the entire album. I just think this is nice and catchy. And catchy is a word you'd use a lot on this album anyway. I I, I do like this. Yeah, I do like that. As I said, that's that simple drum beat. Like it changes at all throughout the album. Nice riff. Nice guitar layers. Good harmonies. Good sing along chorus. Melodic. There's a lot of good tunes on this album. Awful lot of good tunes on this album. And the arrangements are great, but I'm getting far too much heavy petting for my liking here. What, and that's a bad thing? No, but I'm not getting heavy petting at their best. <laughs> light petting. Yeah, I'm getting light petting. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting. There's nothing wrong with this track. It's just after the title track, you really want them to pick it up and kick the hell out of it, don't you, to the end of the, the side. And they don't quite do that. So that's side one. So you turn it all over and we're off a gallop again. Side two opens with a track called Too Late. I've written here, this is a a Nwabam classic, post-punk, hard rock fusion. I I thought it's really in the the early tradition of Def Leppard. I could hear them doing this. You know what I'm getting with that? There's a kind of 
sneeriness in this verse that reminds me of a kind of you're in love lay it down era rat yeah I think this is a cracking song really good side two track one yeah obviously it's faster really good riffs good builds vocal harmonies again this could have started the album this could have ended the album I love the outro to it it's got a fantastic finish track of the album for me praise indeed but you're wrong yeah I was going to say track of the album until I heard dot 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 but yeah. yeah shall we move it on yep and so we come to the track of the album, <laughs> which is Gate Crashing. And um, I, mean, I, I am all shades of prejudice and I just absolutely adore this. This, yeah. this is one of my all-time favourite tracks of all time. <laughs> this is Liverpool twinned with California, isn't it? I mean, this is... Yeah. They're there. They've arrived. They've made it. They've arrived on the strip and this is what they've hit yeah. them with. Do you know what they've taken out of their suitcase? A party seven. Oh, dear. Have you ever been more lifted by a, a hook line and a chorus in your life? It's just glorious. Yeah, it is good. Yes, I have, but it is good. <laughs> I don't know if I want to ruin it for you both. You can't. Okay, are you sure? Yeah, possibly. Because um, the thing that I can't get over <laughs> in the chorus is the fact that when they sing Gate Crashing, for me, I'm singing Grease Lightning. <laughs> Okay, well, that hasn't spoiled it for me because you're talking nonsense. But anyway. I like the melody, I like the guitar riff. The verses are good, but it's uh, it's Grease Lightning. <laughs> okay, let's move it on. So, Gate Crashing, and we're halfway through the second side now, and we are into track three, side two, which is Live Now, Pay Later. And this is the point in the album where the band isn't going to be taking any prisoners right to the end. So they set out at a hell of a pace. Yeah, the production here is a little bit muddy. Straight up rock, no frills. I think it probably lacks a bit of ambition. It's it's a bit by numbers, isn't it? But perfectly decent track. Yeah, and that, those numbers spell out the word motorhead. If we take the vocal off it, I mean, it's just it's just a it's just a proper rocker. Take out all the choruses and everything. It just it just fires along. It's, it's as heavy as anything on the album. Yeah, I like the driving riff throughout. I felt the chorus was a bit flat. You know, the energy, the vocal energy that they're putting into it is where there's almost they're just sort of singing along to it. But uh, yeah, I like I like the, the it's got a really good drive to it. It's the wrong chorus for the track, isn't it? They've kind of kept this formulated chorus line going through the album. In effect, the same kind of melodies and harmonies. And this is a track that calls for something slightly different, doesn't it? Nothing really lifts above the surface, does it? It's all quite flat. But you know, still a good track. And uh, so the album closes with the absolute monster that is Open Fire. And uh, I think, you know, essentially we end the album as we began it. For me, it's brilliantly executed. I think we've had evidence throughout this of just how good a guitarist Mark Railton is. And I can imagine this lighting up their live show. Mm. First time I heard this Y&T, not Y&T's Open Fire, but their own. But this is so Y&T. The the melody... the vocal phrase and then the line after it, the riffs, the way that the entry to the verse, the little whittly bits. So it's a really good closer for the album. Well, that guitar sound is not dissimilar to Manichetti's either, is it, Steve? It's an excellent way to bring the album to the end. The one thing I've got to ask is, are we going to go through this entire review without mentioning that the previous guitarist went on to um, star in Art Attack on BBC TV? I didn't know that. Neil Buchanan, because Art Attack is, I grew up with Art Attack with the kids. Wow, you learn something new every day. 
So there you are. That's um, Marseille's Touch the Night. Lads, we need to do some highs and lows. Steve, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, well, the, the low is just so obvious, isn't it? It's the title track. And the high for me, gate crashing. Richard? Yes, Touch the Night is my low. And uh, you're both wrong. The best track on the album, of course, is Too Late. So that's a hat trick for uh, the title track as the low point of the album. Um, unfortunately, wrong we may be, but we outvote you by two to one, uh, which makes us right. So Gate Crashing is the high of the album. Uh, so there you go, 1984, Marseille. I suppose in closing, every time I listen to this album, I, I just wonder how the hell they didn't make it. How the hell did somebody not pick this album up? and go, there's a bit of potential there. They could be really big and um, and snap them up. You know, them's the way the dice roll sometimes, isn't it? But that's Marseille and 1984's Touch the Night, which we will be scoring later. So that brings us quite nicely to a little bit further into the 1980s, well, towards the end of the 1980s, really. And Babylon AD with their self-titled debut album. Steve, tell us all about it. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, it's very interesting that you should ask the question, why on earth didn't Marseille make it? Because I'm just now going to ask exactly the same question about Babylon AD. Except, of course, we probably know the answer, which is wrong time, wrong place, arguably the wrong label. So this is Babylon AD, their debut album, which was released in September 89. And to put it into context, that's three months after Nirvana's debut album. And that's pretty much all you need to know. That's where we are. We didn't know at the time, but the writing was very much on the wall for the kind of music that Babylon AD were playing. That's not to say that it wasn't doable, because, of course, Skid Row released their debut album in 89. Two years later, three years later, they had a number one selling album. So it was possible. But for Babylon AD, it just didn't happen, which is a crying shame, because I remember at the time buying this album and absolutely fell in love with it. Again, it's the real and it's brilliantly written and it is a proper piece of California hair metal at the back end of the hair metal glory days. If this had come out two years earlier, Babylon AD would have been stars. That's my take on it. So they're from Oakland. Um, they'd been together a couple of years before this album came out and they were originally called The Persuaders. They'd been a big hit on the uh, on the club scene in the Bay Area. And and they were wannabe rock stars. So they were like all those bands who were trying to make a dollar and failing badly. And they were playing the clubs every night and they were fighting and partying and not sleeping and doing the same thing over and over again. And they tell the story of how they would go from club to club on an evening when they weren't playing or before or after and just look for the guy in the suit because they know he'd be the one from the record company. And they'd just give him a flyer and a demo and take a punt. And they spent weeks and months doing this and eventually it paid off that's how they bumped into their first manager so you know perseverance paid off a guy called Jay Maller he took it from there and he said you boys need to go to what well, he suggested they go to LA from Oakland well he didn't suggest it he said you're fucking going to LA because that's where the labels are so you're off there and um, and give it a best shot so they went and they did a few showcases for a few uh, labels managed to impress Clive Davis at Arista who I think are a Sony offshoot you probably know better than me yeah not an obvious rock label but anyway they loved them and they signed them up and said right go make the album and they went and made the album Babylon AD September 89 it took five months how long did um, Nazareth's album take to do was it nine days or something this took five months and the reason it took five months is because they weren't taking it very seriously they were still in their party till you puke mode and they weren't growing up and it took the producer Simon Hanhart yet another English producer out in America doing good things to knock him into shape and they did all done at Oceanway Studios in LA. 
So the band, well, originally, just as they started to produce the album, it was Derek Davis, or Derek, as he's known on the album, um, on lead vocals, um, Ron Freshy on guitar, Rob Reed on bass, and Jamie Pacheco on drums. Um, and the original guitarist was John Matthews as they started recording. Um, he left, presumably he was the only one who was sober. And Danny De La Rosa came in. Did it chart? Well, it got to 88 in the US chart. It lasts best part of 45 minutes. It's a 10 track of five on each side. And to me, it just smells, reeks, evokes late 80s hair metal and I absolutely adore it. Is it perfect? Nah, of course it's not. But there's so much good stuff in this, so much to enjoy. And I hope you boys have enjoyed it. Well, I know you you, you love it, Mark, don't you? Yeah, I, I got this album when I was um, working on a newspaper up in the northeast of England. I was doing the music column. One of the one of the absolute bonuses of, of working on a regional daily newspaper and doing the music column was that I got a shit ton of records sent to me every week, most of which during the period that I was there were hard rock and heavy metal albums because that was the most popular genre. But it also gave me the opportunity to get backstage passes to the Donington Watson's Rock Festival. Anyway, I digress. I was slightly, slightly worried coming to this album because I remembered four tracks, which is always a good sign when you haven't listened to an album for a while. I remember the first two on side one, the first two on side two, but I couldn't really remember anything else. But I thought, do you know what? Four out of ten tracks are pretty good. So it's not going to be a complete turkey. I have forgotten how good this album even at its low point, it's a good album. And I've really enjoyed listening to it this week. Yeah, what a corker. What an absolute corker. Of the three albums, enjoyed all th- listening to all three this week, but th- this one the most, I think, in terms of the, the riffs, the um, it's well produced, there's some good songwriting on it. So, yes, very good. Brilliant. Should we listen to it? Let's do that. So, as I say, it's a 10-track beast, five on each side, and uh, side one is Hammer Swings Down, Caught Up in the Crossfire, Desperate, and the Kid Goes Wild, preceded by Bang Go the Bells, which was the track that just set this whole thing in motion. You never see it's the first one you're going to listen to. is the first track on the album, and man, I was hooked, hooked when I heard this. Top, top riff, and if there's one thing this band does well, it's riffs. So, yeah, they're a hair metal band, of course they are, but fuck me. I mean, this is a proper rock band you know they may look the part but they rocked and they had the twin guitarists and I'll, I'll keep mentioning him and I'll make no apology for mentioning him Derek as he's known or Derek Davis as he's really known is a majestic singer a proper right out of the top drawer rock singer and Bango the Bells is a proper right out of the top drawer rock song the two words I've written down for the immediate impact of this song was oh hello yeah, what a start. What a great start. Superb riff. Like Derek Davis's voice, really like it a lot. He's one that stays within his range of control throughout this album. Just really makes the best of, of what he's got. And, and he does on this track. So hooky, so catchy, great sing-along, really good stuff. Yeah, absolutely agree. I've got nothing else to add, really, other than I, I do remember the first time I played this and this came on and I was just like, fucking hell, that's good. And then you think, so where do they go from here? And then Hammer Swings Down comes on and you go, oh, there, oh, there, okay. Great minds, great minds, Mark. That's exactly how I felt. That's exactly how I felt because, yes, it gets better and you think this has no right. You think you've peaked. 
after track one and suddenly yeah, that's the that's the hors d'oeuvre because um, hammer swings down which features a hammer to prove that it does swing down but this is good honest to goodness proper late 80s rock top top quality love it rich keeps up the momentum doesn't it really good track too the opening track in this one i've i've they've swung to and fro in terms of which one i prefer and also whether i've been listening to it sat there with headphones on and really focusing or just had it on in the background this one where you just have it on in the background it's one of those songs you suddenly stop and go oh uh, and it catches you. It's just got a lovely groove to it. Yeah. Best chorus of the night. In terms of the way it fits structurally within the song, I think it just it picks you up and carries you away, doesn't it? It's, yeah. um, it's a really, really good. One of five songs co-written by Jack Ponty, a name that means much to you. He was a well-regarded songwriter, wasn't he, I do believe? Shot Through the Heart. Yeah, he did Shot Through the Heart. He did, um, he did quite a lot with a band called Surgeon. Okay. Um, which, if you remember, well, you probably won't, but... Black cover on the album and uh, letters in yellow, and that they were italicised across the front. So he was um, actually a member of that band. But yeah, he was a fairly well-known songwriter back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Now you, you described Bango the Bells as the hors d'oeuvre. I would describe Bango the Bells as the amuse-bouche and Hammer Swings Down as the hors d'oeuvre, because I think this album gets better. That says, that says a lot about your taste. In, in, in music in this album and it also says a lot about the fact that you are a middle class fart from Hertfordshire as well so <laughs> <laughs> bouquet garni anyone <laughs> okay and the, the hammer has swung down into uh, caught up in the crossfire track three this is a bit different it's a slightly more uncomplicated bit more straightforward riffing and the start of this I thought was a little bit wimpy a little bit meh and then um but it really picks up it's one of those you you, you've got to give this the benefit and it'll grow on you and it's a track that's grown on me over the years didn't like it originally didn't that was no. one of my low points yeah and one of my favorite bands of all time is vain and i get a lot of vain in this and you're absolutely right i started off going oh well, can we have the hammer swings down like again? But once you kind of get beyond that and you put it to one side and you judge this on its own merits, this is this has been the real grower for me this week. Started off thinking it was yeah okay, usual sort of thump thump stuff, but for me not as not as good as the first two. I'm with Richard on that. I think if you give it another ten years, you'll, <laughs> you'll get. And so on to track four, where Marseille would put on a heap of shit. But this isn't Marseille. This is Babylon AD. And so it's ballad time and it's an absolute peach called Desperate. Written by Derek Davis in his bedroom. Inspired apparently by a poster for the Mickey Rourke film Barfly. I didn't know any of that. Never seen the film. Anyway, showed it to Jack Ponty. They fiddled with it, beefed up the chorus and so on. They can do slower stuff. I know Mark referenced the second album, um, Nothing Sacred, which was released in 19... 92, 93, 92. Don't know. There's a song on there. There's a joy of a number on there called So Savage the Heart. And Davis's voice will do these tracks justice. But again, a bit like Caught Up in the Crossfire, just when you think it's a slightly iffy start, man, it goes. It goes. This is a really, really stellar piece of work, I think. I, I, I really like the verses in this. It's a, it, it's a sort of a song of two parts for me. I do find the chorus a little too boy band. With you, Richard. Yeah, but in a good way. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> it's really it's really strange because it's one of those tracks that it begins and I think I don't really much like it. And then I think, no, but I do actually quite like it. And then the chorus comes on and I go, no, I'm not sure I do like it anymore. I think the, the bottom line is I end up quite liking it as a song. Mm. 
But I think the chorus lets it down. This was the one that was supposed to get them noticed because they knew it was going to be a losing battle and they released it as the fourth and final single off this album of the previous three having bombed and had no success. And Davis gave it to Ponty to give to the band Baton Rouge. You know, mm-hmm. Baton Rouge, don't you? Yeah. Who put it out on their 1991 release, Lights Out on the Playground. And I wanted to see if it had had any success with them. So I typed into Google Desperate Single and Baton Rouge and I'm none the wiser about the song, but let's say the next time I'm ever in that corner of Louisiana, I've definitely got a bed for the night. You <laughs> <laughs> worked on that all week. It's priceless. <laughs> Now then, now we have a problem because side one ends with The Kid Goes Wild. I think it was the first single off the album and is the one that people know, I think, through the film Robocop or Robocop 2. They didn't write it for the film. Orion Films apparently came to them and said, can we use it? As Derek Davis says, that was a no-brainer because he still gets royalty checks every three months. Do you know what? I'm actually quite fairly indifferent to this one on very many yeah. levels. What, what what do you boys think? Yeah, it's. It, I think it's out of kilter with the rest of the album it, it doesn't quite fit and I, I really hate that hand up kind of standoff with the cops halfway through it um, which drives me nuts it's just so random it's just shite and also the other the other thing about this is that for four songs we've had Davis highlighting effectively what a great singer he is and then for some reason we get this complete vocal overhaul and, and not a very good one he just becomes yeah. something else and yeah that, that kind of rap is that what it is I don't know it's just shit it feels to me like down for the count era warranty. Yeah, okay. It's a band doing a song that isn't really in their wheelhouse and they're yeah. not doing it pretty well. And it's proximity to the album before. This is the proximity to the tracks before. It just feels out of place, doesn't it, as you say? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not, not bothered about this at all. A comedian called Sam Kinnison did the uh, spoken bit in the middle of Young, Never Take Me Alive. Yeah, it's a comedian that did it. So, and yeah, they're, they're trying too hard and I don't get the bit in the middle. It made me laugh where it basically this... This kid is um, obviously going wild with all of his guns, um, but it, but it, it, he starts off with a bottle of wine. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm going to go out and kill some people tonight. Uh, so yes, sent a million. That will do. <laughs> yes, with my amused bouche. <laughs> A, a, a weaker end to a great side. Yeah. yeah. And so to Curio number two, after Curio number one was The Kid Goes Wild, Curio number two is not the fact that Shot of Love, which kicks off side two, is not a great song, it is. But is it a side two opener? They've stripped it right back, they've slowed it right down, and you are fearing a ballad, which you don't get. But it's, um, it's an interesting choice. Well, first time I ever heard this, I'm sitting there going, no, no, they haven't. Have they? Oh, God, please don't tell me they've started. They're not kicking off side two with a ballad, surely. And then you go, no, they're not. Yay! Re- Rejoice at that news. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is a track that I think would have been better in another position on the album. But I really like it. it, it again, it was another one that really, really grew on me. I like the ups and downs. I like the first half, this sort of subtle guitars, quiet, and then the second half it lifts, and then it lifts again into the chorus, goes back down again. So it's it's very, very well arranged. It's a really good tune. It is, yeah. And um, both the guitarists get to, you know, Freshie and De La Rosa, they both get, you know, centre parts in this. One of them was referred to as as an Eddie Van Halen sound-alike, and I don't actually get that by Derek Davis in an interview I read. One thing I do notice about this album 
is none of the none of the guitar sellers are over long or overstated. It's a really sort of collaborative collegiate effort, which is quite interesting because they've got two great guitarists and they are good. I think the production on this album just it kind of melds it all together. Richard, you're our production guru. I think Simon Hanhart has done a fantastic job on this album. Yes. I think he's done a great job. The production is very, very well balanced. Although it came in for criticism, didn't it? For not capturing their kind of bombastic live sound. The reason for that, so I read, was that they felt that he didn't really know the band when he was working with them and therefore didn't understand kind of what they need to capture. I mean, I think he's done a great job. I have never seen Babylon AD live, so I have no idea whether he captured the essence of who they were or not. But I don't think there's anything wrong with this album. But it's interesting that not everybody thought he'd done a great job. Well, he's a, he's a student of Mutt Lang, isn't he? So, um, and you get that sense of his... And you can hear that. Education. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh, track two on side two, and we welcome back Marianne, last seen in a guest appearance on Boston's More Than a Feeling. Um, she's back. <laughs> And sweeter than that old Delilah, according to Derek Davis, than the riffs back. Well, this is another big hooky hair metal anthem, isn't it? It's, um, and again, I, I could hear Contagious Era Y&T in this. I think there's a lot of synergy between the sound that Y&T had at this time and, and Babylon AD, actually. I'm not sure Dave Minichetti would thank me for saying it, but it's true. You're going to sing along to this all day, aren't you? It's, you um, it's really big hook line. Well, I'm just Marianne, Marianne, looking like a younger diver. Marianne, Marianne, cut me like the perfect diamond. Marianne, Marianne, I'm bitten by the snake inside you. I have discovered a new word this week, which is called prosody, which I'm sure you're well aware of. All GCSE music students will know the word prosody. It is, and I quote, the way the composer sets the text of a vocal composition in the assignment of syllables to notes in the melody to which the text is sung. And what I would say is that Derek Davis understands prosody very well because the scanning of this album, the phraseology of this album, there is absolutely perfect. You go through every song, they fit an absolute treat, every single one. The other really good example of that is, I can't remember with this in my ear, I can't remember, but it's something like the thundering sound of a ship hitting ground on Hammer yeah. Swings Down. Yeah. Absolute on the beat. Yeah. yeah. And if you keep listening throughout the album, you'll realise that there is, there is not, a, not, not a mistake in um, in the phraseology of the of the wording, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Good to point out again. Again, coming back to his vocal range on this one, and this is one of the tracks where he's probably getting highest. But he he never overstretches himself. We talk about you know so many times about vocalists. Just no, no, he should have he should he, he's gone too far. But he he's still well within comfortably within uh, his his range, and uh, it works. So anyway, so we're back on the uh, we're, we're back in the saddle with Marianne after you know some interesting moments. Back end of side one, start of side two. Anyway, and now we've got the title track. And um, yeah, back in Babylon, almost the title track. And can you feel it seed? I mean, this is just this is just mucky and messy and dirty and rocky and brilliant, superb song. Yeah, I've written down, and the hits just keep on coming. This was another grower for me, actually. It's got bags of attitude, hasn't it? It's, it's an absolute fuck you track, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I've got a big dose of faster pussycat in this very definitely yeah yeah and that would make sense it's that kind of era that kind of feel the whole thing it looks it it just it just feels dirty 
Shit, and also the little the little things, the little pauses going into the chorus. I just love that to bits. The little guitar runs in those choruses. Rob Reed, not even spoken about him. You know, he, certainly in the middle of this track, there's a little sneering bit in the middle where the bass takes centre stage. Just a really, really good piece of work, showing the band in 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 their completeness and uh, you know what a good product they were. And I'm still sitting there thinking why they didn't make it. But anyway, yeah, you make a good point. There's a band they're incredibly balanced. The whole is more than the some of the parts no one's trying to show off or take a you know a bigger part yeah so track nine penultimate track is sweet temptation and we're just off to party central we're off down the strip california IA with the boys and um you knew a track like this was coming it's great good fun this track bit more sort of standard chorus is okay perfectly good track but bettered by better tracks on this album oh, i think it's lazy and ambitious myself yeah. it's a meh track it's got a heavy dose of saccharin and quite an insipid chorus. Yeah, it's all right. Got nothing to add, really. Well, what I always like about any album is the way it finishes. <laughs> it is crucial. And this is just a great finishing track. It's called Sally Dance. One of the first songs they're ever written three or four years before, written in Derek Davis's bedroom with the acoustic guitar, and he's playing the acoustic guitar at the start of it. Um, and we talked about Nazareth earlier, and they do this sort of like, folksy southern rock thing, which is what Sally danced is to a bit. But, of course, it's the Babylon AD take on it. So um, we've got the seal steel strings, we've got the slide guitar, a bit of harmonica. Davis's voice is brilliant doing this kind of southern thing, southern hair metal style. That's what I thought it was. And then it picks up, and then it just adds punch, and it's layers, and it's subtle, and it's layers and layers and layers and it goes on and up and big and then you eventually bring in a bit of steaming guitar and we're up and we're rocking again it's a oh, i just think it's a fantastic finish yes great blues rock and it? it's got a real real swagger to it i too like the way i mean it just it it, it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until the last half minute where it then just drops like a stone right back down to the that's sort of that introduction again a really good way to finish the album mark yeah, I like it. I think it's a really good story. It's got a great groove to it. You can almost smell the smoke in the bar, can't you? And what I like about it, like you, Steve, I think how an album album ends is really important. And this just kind of shimmies its way out the door, doesn't it? Yeah, I love it. Really good. And unfortunately, of course, um, they just shimmied into anonymity. It just didn't, I mean, you know, the next album came out and that was then pretty much done. They're still, they're still playing now. Released an album a few years ago. Um, which I've heard a few tracks from. It's fine. But yeah, it just, for Babylon AD, it just never quite happened. But Babylon AD, the album, let's talk some highs and lows. Mark? Okay, so my high on this album is uh, Hammer Swings Down. And the low, I mean, it's a tough one to call, but I think Sweet Temptation for me. It's a yeah, close call on the low between Sweet Temptation, Kid Goes Wild. Maybe the Kid Goes Wild just gets bottom spot. And for me, the high... I think the sheer impact of that first track will swing it for me. Bango the Bells gets my top vote. Okay. Yeah, I know. I'm like you. I've, I've had little mood changes on the scoring all week. Um, but the one thing that's not changed is my dislike of The Kid Goes Wild. And pick of the tracks, I'll say Hammer Swings Down. For me, so there you go. That's the, uh, that's the third and final album from Wherever I May Roam, uh, a trip around the rock world in the company of Enter Sadman. Uh, so we're going to score these things up and uh, stick with us and we'll see how they get on and where they figure in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. 
Okay, so the scores are in for episode 27, wherever I may roam. So we had Nazareth, Hair of the Dog, Marseille's Touch the Night, and Babylon AD's Babylon AD. So we'll start with mine, the first album, Hair of the Dog by Nazareth, and the scores are as follows. Steve gave it a 7.25, Mark a 7.025, and me a 7.0625. Uh, all pretty close scores, uh, and that gave it an average of 7.1125. Mark, how did Marseille do? Marseille fared pretty well, really. Steve, you gave it a 7.39. Richard gave it a 6. Point, well, it was a devil score, really, 6 point, all the sixes and a 7. And I, probably not surprisingly, uh, marked it the highest score, 7.96 giving Marseille an average score, a very respectable average, um, average score of 7.34074. Steve, talk us through Babylon AD. Um, Babylon ADs, Babylon AD. Yeah, so, right. Um, Rich, you gave it 7.2. I thought I loved it, but I didn't love it as much as I thought. I gave it 7.7. And uh, Mark, you gave it 8.01 for a final score of 7.63. Okay, so uh, three albums, all in the very crowded and congested region of the mid to uh, low uh, sevens. Let's pop over to the Hall of Fame, open that baby up and see how they got on there. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so the doors are open on the Hall of Fame. Three more to add to it. That makes it 81 albums, and now they're gone tantalizingly close to actually having a top 100. Hair of the Dog by Nazareth comes in at 62. Touch the Night by Marseille at 57. And the pick of the three tonight was uh, Babylon AD's debut album, Babylon AD, which is at 34, all scored in the sevens. And I'm figuring that we kind of thought that would be the case, that there weren't really any top 10 contenders tonight, whether as much as we loved them. And we did. Yeah, I think that's that's true. There was a moment where I thought Babylon AD might actually kind of be kissing the teens but you know in, in, in the end I think as we've always said you're only really as good as your weakest track aren't you and unfortunately for them there, there were a couple of not so great tracks on there but as you say and rightly actually the pick of the pick of the bunch it's, it's certainly the album that I've enjoyed listening to most of all I think yeah it's interesting what you say about um, you're only as good as your bad track because when, when I took Hair of the Dog off the turntable my figurative turntable um, I thought yeah shit that's a that's a eight and a half out of ten album and as it transpires it's not because there's two or three tracks that if you put your mind to it and our scoring, you know, will identify any weaknesses in any album. And, um, yeah, it's wound up where it has a 7.1. Rich? Yeah, agreed. We keep saying this, don't we, that other lists and other reviews generally judge an album based on its strong tracks. People put Hair of the Dog up there as one of the classics, mostly because of the title track. So I, I think it's I think it's fair where it's ended up. I think Marseille have done, you know, really well with that score and Babylon AD I mean Crumbs I think that you know, that is the undiscovered gem I mean yeah there it is nestled at 34 just what less than 0.01 lower than Appetite for Destruction so that's um, a very good result for that album So there you go that is another week done 
uh, another three albums gone into the Hall of Fame. As Steve said, we're at 81 now, another 19 to go um, before we actually have a 100. And um, it's going to be the top 100 that really counts, although we're going to obviously list them right the way through to 28,000 that no doubt we'll get through by the time we're 100. Um, but that's it for another week. Um, we will be back next time with another three gems to listen to. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it and, you know, go and check these albums out, you know, either go out and buy them if that's your bag or, you know, listen to them on a, obviously a licensed and regulated streaming service and um, yeah, enjoy them, enjoy them as much as we did because they're well worth a listen regardless of their place in the Hall of Fame. Thanks for your company. We'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.